So, it's that time again. I am Wyndham Jennings, welcoming you, as always, to this episode of Celluloid Fever Dreams, number 59. This week we're talking about a 1966 release from Paramount Pictures, starring Rock Hudson and Salome Jens. It's the sci-fi thriller, Seconds. We got two taglines for the film, one, one of which to me doesn't make much sense maybe it did back in 1966 but it says not for weak sisters maybe not even for strong stomachs or no wait i misread that may not even be for strong stomachs so it's the uh the tums of film i guess i don't i don't know uh the other one is who are seconds the answer is almost too terrifying for words from the bold bizarre bestseller the story of a man who buys for himself a totally new life. A man who lives the age-old dream. If only I could live my life all over again. Maybe I should have tried for a more Rod Serling style voice while doing that. Because the film, uh, and it's not just me, I've, I've come across several reviews from the time uh, also that had this, this uh, take on the film. Uh, that it has a very Twilight Zone feel to it it's uh even in a couple of the reviews they said it felt like an extended episode of the old black and white rod serling hosted twilight zone the film's in black and white i point that out because i know not everybody really likes black and white films or wants to see them so you've been warned if you decide to seek this one out me personally i think the black and white helps the mood of the film a little better than if it'd been in color the themes of it it really especially in the beginning uh, before he undergoes the procedure and gets the new life when we're introduced to arthur hamilton our protagonist it really helps drive home to me his feelings you know he's achieved everything that you could possibly want to achieve in life he has a successful career he has a chance to continue to move up even though he's middle-aged uh, him and his wife have a, a, you know, they've been together for years and they've been faithful to each other. They've raised a daughter who's married and uh, married to a successful man who lives in California. They have a nice house, uh, but he's just not content with any of it. It's like he wants more or thinks there should be more out of life, even if he can't really articulate that uh, to his wife or even uh, on some level to himself. And I think the choice for black and white film also helps drive home the cold clinical nature of the company, uh, capitalized the company. They don't give it any other name. They're the people responsible for finding people like Arthur and giving them a second chance at life by reconstructive surgery, uh, presenting them with new jobs, new names, uh, new homes, just you know, basically what did you ever really want to be in life and they help you do it. For a fee, of course. And I really do think that, uh, you know, as I said, the choice to not film it in color helps just drive home that they don't really, that there's nothing warm and fuzzy about them. In Arthur's interview with the company, the thing, the first thing that he's asked is, how do you want to die? You know, it's going to be the most important question that you're going to answer probably in your life. And then when they talk about the fees and uh, the insurance policies they've already taken out on Arthur, 
that are going to cover the costs of the surgery and rehabilitation and everything, as well as pay off his wife and daughter and allow them to live comfortably uh, for the rest of their lives. He also brings up just quite offhandedly that a good chunk of the fees goes towards the CPS division of the company, which is the corpse procurement section. In other words, they're not just faking Arthur's death, they're going to actually find someone who matches his physical description as close as possible and going to they're going to find a body of Arthur Hamilton and they're going to bury it and you know, then no one will ever come looking for him. So how does one get chosen to become a second or sorry, okay, here's I'm gonna I'm just gonna say this is the one thing that irritated me about the movie. The title is Seconds. They use the word seconds uh, in the poster, and it makes sense. You know, it's a second life. It's a second chance to pursue your dreams. It's, you know, works. But in the film, they constantly refer to them as reborns. I don't know why the decision was made for that, but it just, I don't know, irked me. Because I feel like seconds is a much better name for what Arthur and uh, all of them go through and the procedures and everything. So how does one get chosen to become a second? Well, in Arthur's case, his friend Charlie, who supposedly died, uh, I really don't think they say how long ago he died, but it's obviously a couple of years at least. But he calls Charlie and he starts telling him about, you know, he got a second chance, he's alive, he gives him an address to go to and tells him that from now on he answers to the name Wilson. So it's a referral service. You know, you have to, you're brought in by somebody who's already a member, basically. Now, uh, I'm going to take a little sidebar here because Arthur Hamilton is played by John Randolph, who got his first movie role in 1948 in Naked City. Some of the other films you may recognize him from include Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Serpico, All the President's Men, the 1976 version of King Kong, and he was the original Frank Costanza on Seinfeld, as well as playing Chevy Chase's father in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Now, his casting as Arthur takes on a different meaning, because in 1955, John Randolph and his wife was pulled up before the House Un-American Activities Committee because of their left-leaning politics and their activism in various uh, groups advocating for change in America. He pleaded the fifth and was blacklisted. He had a few television roles between 1955 and this film, but Frankenheimer actually broke the blacklist of Hollywood in order to cast John Randolph as Arthur Hamilton. In fact, according to his wife, Randolph was the longest serving person on the blacklist. In other words, just about everybody else had been rehired or gotten their careers back before him uh, and now naturally I'm, I'm not going to do a deep dive into McCarthyism uh, but it is worth noting that during the 50s Joseph McCarthy armed with his laundry list started a witch hunt trying to root out communism and other subversive elements in America so basically if you were left of him then well you were put on watch and uh, called up before the Un-Americans Committee to answer for your crimes. Uh, interestingly enough, two other characters, in the, well, two other actors in the film were also blacklisted in Hollywood by the House Un-Americans Activities Committee. 
So uh, I find it hard to believe that the casting of John Randolph, uh, Jeff Corey, who plays Mr. Ruby, and Nedrick Young, who plays Henry Bushman, was coincidental, uh, especially in a film about second chances and getting to live the life you thought you deserved. Uh, Jeff Corey plays Mr. Ruby. You can see him in such stuff as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, True Grit, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, and Little Big Man, one of my favorite Dustin Hoffman movies. I'm going to have to see if I can find that and add it to the list and tell you guys about it. Uh, Nedrick Young plays Henry Bushman. You can catch him in stuff like The Defiant Ones and the Vincent Price House of Wax from the 50s. He was also a writer. He wrote the screenplay for the Elvis Presley film Jailhouse Rock, as well as the screenplay for The Defiant Ones. Seconds would turn out to be his final movie. He died uh, shortly after the film came out. So Arthur Hamilton, banker, becomes Tony Wilson, an artist. He goes through plastic surgery. He goes through physical therapy. Uh, he has surgery on his vocal cords even to change the timbre of his voice. He's trained to sign his name like Wilson. Uh, he's even given degrees and other awards that were earned by Wilson and a house in Malibu, California. Of course, he wonders where all this comes from, but the company plays its cards close to its chest as they say none of it is faked. It is all legitimate. The reborn Arthur Hamilton, or Tony Wilson as he is for the rest of the film, is played by Rock Hudson. Now, up to this point, Rock Hudson had been seen more as a, a romantic comedy kind of actor, sort of a lightweight. But he really, really wanted to play this role. It was originally supposed to be Kirk Douglas, but due to uh, scheduling conflicts, Douglas had to drop out. The studio wasn't sure about uh, Hudson in the role, because as I said, he had been mainly a lightweight, well, as they say it, lightweight actor up to that point. But uh, Frankenheimer took him on and put him in the role, and considered it to be a really good choice. In fact, uh, up until his death in 1985, Rock Cutson considered the role of Tony Wilson in seconds to be one of his favorite and his best in his entire career. In fact, Frankenheimer has gone on record as saying that it was Hudson's idea to split the role of Arthur Hamilton slash Tony Wilson into two people because he didn't feel like that one person could properly convey the changes, the absolute changes between uh, the character from the beginning of the film to the second half of the film. I kind of agree with Hudson and Frankenheimer. I, I really think that you know, the surgery that they show, which, according to Frankenheimer, some of the surgery shots in the film were uh, taken from an actual rhinoplasty he attended with a cameraman in order to add authenticity. But to me, it does work that they have two actors because it is supposed to be a complete rebirth. Like, everything about uh, Arthur is supposed to have been changed. Ironically, though, the critics, when the film come out, actually liked pointing this out as one of the things they didn't like about the film because, according to some of them, they just couldn't believe that you could turn John Randolph into Rock Hudson, no matter how much surgery you put him through. Rock Hudson's first speaking role was in the 1948 film Fighter Squadron. Other films you can catch him in include... Sea Devils, Written on the Wind, Giant, Pillow Talk, Ice Ice Stage yeah, Ice Station Zebra, say that three times fast, and Send Me No Flowers. Hudson died in October of nineteen eighty five of complications from the AIDS virus. 
he brought a face and a public awareness of the disease that had been lacking up to that point. And again, I'm an entertainment podcast. Uh, I'm not really going into a deep dive of the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and the lack of government response to it. That's not my purpose, and more importantly, it's not my story. Uh, I do remember, I will tell you this, when it come out and you know when Hudson died of it and all of the news stories, it was it was a watershed moment in history. It is a moment in my life that I can literally look at as, okay, there was the world before and there was the world after. Uh, and I remember how much this was in the news and all of the all of the wild speculation and the misinformation that come out, and this is pre-internet. So, you know, this is newspapers and, and television shows and stuff like the National Enquirer, things like that, just trying to run out ahead of it. And uh, I remember the controversy because he was on uh, the show Dynasty at the time, and he'd kissed Linda Evans in one scene. And it actually wound up, uh, because of that, and because there was the, the rumor that it could even be spread by that, and even at one point, I think they were talking about, if I remember right, they were talking about water fountains. Like, could you get it from using a water fountain somebody had had? I mean, absolute nuts stuff looking back on it now. But it was just that kind of hysteria. But because he kissed her on the show, it actually led to the Screen Actors Guild rewriting the rules covering kissing scenes because of, of him. Yeah, so, and you got to remember, I was 12 when he died. But that's the one thing that's still, you know, going on 40 years later. I remember at that time period is just how much it dominated the news, dominated everything, and all of the, you know, rumors and and, uh, insanity and panic that came out from this revelation. And the other revelation, of course, that Rock Hudson uh, was homosexual. Uh, According to some, it was an open secret in the industry. But, of course, the general public didn't know about it. And, and you know, especially at the time that he was a big star in the 50s and 60s, uh, it was easy because the studios maintained, like, a very tight grip on their stars and would arrange uh, things to keep rumors down. You know, they controlled a lot of the media that, you know, covered these things. They, they you know, paid off reporters. Or they would leak certain stories. Or, you know, if, if you weren't the big star, then... You know, they might leak something on you. In fact, uh, it come out that Hudson, in 1955, Confidential Magazine, had found out that uh, he was a homosexual and was threatening to out him. But his agent killed the story by revealing dirt on actor Rory Calhoun and uh, the times he went to prison. And actor Tab Hunter, who we talked about a few weeks ago in Polyester, who had been arrested for... um, uh, dist- arrested for disturbing the peace in the early 50s. Strangely enough, Tab Hunter would later also come out as a uh, homosexual. Yeah, but I can also remember some of my older relatives after at that revelation just you know could not believe it that you know Rock Cutson was you know this manly man and a ladies man and you know the roles he played and they just couldn't wrap their head around uh, that he you know wasn't straight. Uh, and I just, I just got to say, it was a weird time in the '80s, uh, especially when this come out, because there were celebrities that you knew were gay, and it didn't seem like, I mean, and like I said, I was a kid, but it didn't seem like there was that big of a deal around it. 
you know, you knew Elton John was, you, you kind of knew Charles Nelson Riley was, you know, but to find out Rock Hudson was, it just kind of, I think, shook people because of his image. And especially because he'd been married for three years to Phyllis Gates, who was the secretary of his agent. Uh, Gates maintained that they were married out of love, not to prevent people from discovering uh, the truth about his sexuality. Uh, but looking back at the timeline, they did get married not long after the uh, confidential magazine story threatened to break. Uh, I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But Tony Wilson has trouble adjusting to his new life. He doesn't really want to meet his neighbors. He has to learn how to paint. Uh, you know, he's just sort of living a solitary existence with his butler slash handler from the company who's making sure he's transitioning when he meets a free-spirited young woman named Nora who talks about she's run away from her family and started anew in Malibu as well. And Nora's played by Salome Jens who got her break in the film Terror from the Year 5000 and has appeared in the film's Diary of, also appeared in the film Diary of the Dead and probably if you know you grew up in the 90s you might recognize her as Martha Kent from the Superboy TV show. Uh, she tries to loosen him up, taking him to a wine festival that uh, degrades into a naked hippie grape stomping uh, bacchanal. But uh, no matter what she tries to do, Tony Wilson can't quite shake being Arthur Hamilton. Uh, and I'm not going to spoil the rest of the movie for you, but as Arthur finds out, well, the company wasn't lying when they said, once you make this decision, you can never go back. Going to do a quick rundown of some other people in the cast because the film's full of uh, actors that kind of you might recognize them from other things. The old man, who's the founder and uh, president of the company, is played by Will Gear, whose most famous role is Grandpa Walton on the uh, well, it's the one I remember him for. Uh, he's Grandpa Walton on the Walton's TV show in the 70s. He's also in the Robert Redford film Jeremiah Johnson. Dr. Uh, Inez, who does the surgery on Arthur is played by Richard Anderson who I you know again as a kid I remember as Oscar Goldman on the six million dollar man and he is also in the sci-fi classic Forbidden Planet alongside Leslie Nielsen and Arthur's friend Charlie is played by Murray Hamilton who will forever be remembered as the mayor in Jaws he also appeared in the films The Graduate 1941 The Way We Were and Anatomy of a Murder so seconds didn't really do all that well when it come out it made about a million dollars on a four million dollar budget when they premiered it at Cannes. uh well the press kind of tore it apart the audience really didn't enjoy it either in fact frankenheimer refused to go to the press conference to talk about the film the reaction to it was so bad and he sent rock hudson in his place and and discovering all this it really surprised me on a number of levels like I said, the cast of the film uh, is top-notch. I really enjoyed the story. I thought the story was really interesting. Uh, you know, when I said that it was, it reminded me of a Twilight Zone episode, like an extended episode, I didn't mean that as a knock. I mean, the entire film has this really paranoid uh, feel to it, like this surreal... And it all starts with the opening credits, the their opening title sequence. Uh, just this distorted views of close-ups of the human anatomy, the um, you know the font choices, the music—it just sets a tone, and the rest of the film carries that through. I really 
did like the film, uh, and and I'm I'm not saying it's perfect. No film is perfect outside the Blues Brothers, and probably Princess Bride, but it had more hits than misses. Like I said, I didn't understand them being reborns instead of seconds. Um, I do feel like the middle part where we're seeing uh, Arthur adjust to being Tony. It might, in my opinion, it may have been a little bit tighter. Like there's may have dragged just a little bit before they introduced Salome, or we might have seen more of of Salome and Tony together, and uh, or even if they had done because as Tony he goes back and visits his wife, but he's in California, so I didn't understand why he didn't go and see his daughter as well. Uh, according to Frankenheimer, there is actually there was actually a scene filmed that featured him going to visit his daughter and seeing what he how his daughter remembered him as Arthur now that he was dead but it got cut out for the theatrical release and they wanted to put it back in uh, years later I think for the Criterion edition because Criterion has released this on a DVD but it couldn't be found and I do believe something like that could have helped the movie but as it stands I do think it is a classic film. In fact, Frankenheimer talks about it's probably the only film he ever made that went from failure to classic without ever being successful in between at any point. And for me, it's really hard to pinpoint why the film failed. Like I said, the cast is fantastic. It's a great cast. Uh, They've all done great work before this film, in this film, uh, and even after this film. Behind the scenes, I mean, David Eli uh, is the author of the book Seconds, which came out in 1964, and he's written the books Trot, The Tour, uh, Journal of the Flood Year, and, you know, this story is right in his wheelhouse. You know, he's known for stories where the protagonist must ultimately come to terms with himself, uh, and usually this is by being thrust into a world that seems to be alien, all-powerful, and unfriendly, and believe me, that fits the court yeah fits the company to a t but you know it's a best-selling book uh, i hadn't read the book so i can't tell you how how uh, faithful it is to the book but you know best-selling book uh, behind the scenes you know frankenheimer this is considered to be the third film in his paranoia trilogy which include the films the manchurian candidate and seven days in may so you know the the story and the way it's told is you know again something that He's shown to be good at. Uh, some of his other films, just in case you want to check them out, include Grand Prix, the uh, grisly-based uh, horror film The Prophecy, The Iceman Cometh, Year of the Gun, the 90s version of The Island of Dr. Moreau with Val Kilmer, Ronin, and Reindeer Games with Ben Affleck and Charlize Theron. Uh, and, and you've got a good writer behind it. You've got Louis John Carlino, who would go on to do such things as The Great Santini, he wrote The Fox, The Brotherhood, uh, and I Never Promised You a, a Rose Garden. And, you know, to me, that by itself you know, is a you know, good engine for the film. And, like I said, to me, I, I loved it. This first time I'd ever watched it. I just saw a, a blurb on it somewhere, and I thought, i got to check that out. Because I hadn't really heard of it, despite it being a Criterion film. You know, it just struck me as the kind of film I wanted to talk about and I'd try to get you guys to see. And... It is. It's a good and like I said, just like I said, bestseller. You got a director and a writer that have done stuff like this before. You've got a great cast, and, and you know, you'd think that would be enough. Well, I mean, it's enough that nowadays 
more people see it as a classic. But at the time, you'd think that would be enough to you know get people interested. And then when you dive into some more people behind the scenes that were in it, you know, I talked about the title sequence. Well, that was Saul Bass, who was a graphic designer, and he did title sequences, film posters, corporate logos. Uh, he designed, give you an idea, he designed the Hanna-Barbera logo. Uh, he designed the AT&T logo. He's, he's considered by many in film history to be the, the first, well, one of the first to ever elevate the uh, title sequence at the beginning of a film and the credit sequences at the end into a form of art. You know, in the early days, they would just project up the uh, title sequences at the beginning. They wouldn't even open the curtain sometimes. They would just start them on the curtains, and then as the film started, the curtains would part to let you know the story was starting. But uh, Saul Bass is one of the earliest adopters to make you want to sit and watch the opening title sequence for a film. You know, and I can remember that when I was a kid. Like, whenever a new James Bond film would come out, that would be one of the things people would talk about was the title sequence, the song choice, which seems kind of weird nowadays because it's not something that they really do in films anymore. Um, and especially now because it seems like credit sequences have become the thing that, that uh, filmmakers will show off a little extra creativity, you know, bonus scenes or uh, jokes that they'll throw in during the credits or around the credits, things like that bloopers or whatever but if you want to check out some more title sequences by Saul Bass you can go check out the movies The Man with the Golden Arm which is from 1955 uh, Vertigo, Psycho the 60's version of West Side Story the Tom Hanks film Big the Danny DeVito film The War of the Roses Goodfellas, Higher Learning and Casino some uh, movie posters that he helped design include Anatomy of a Murder, Birdman of Alcatraz, The Shining, and Schindler's List. Saul also directed one movie, Phase 4, which I watched a few months ago and is one of the weirdest films I've ever seen. Um, I, I'm trying to, if I'm, if I'm remembering the, the uh, plot of it correctly, ants in the world gain a hive intelligence and begin attacking and killing people in a research station. It was a uh, you know one of those eco disaster uh, film that was you know popular in the mid to late seventies. The thing I remember about it is some of the special effects because the ants would burrow into you, so you would get these dead bodies with like holes in them and ants pouring in and out of the holes like they were using the people for nests. It's really disturbing. The uh, to me that's the most memorable thing about the film because it kind of ended with. It, one of those endings that's not an ending, which was also popular in a, in a certain, for some reason, in the 70s. Yeah, and then you add on to that the cinematography. This is a beautiful film to look at. The black and white photography, the lighting of it, the camera angles, uh, you know, just, I, I mean, I, there's no other way to put it. It is a beautiful film to look at. And for that, you can thank James Wong Howell, also known as Low-Key Howell. Who was a who actually was nominated for an Academy Award for this film? He was nominated ten times in his career, won twice for the Rose Tattoo and HUD. He got his start all the way back in the silent film era as a camera assistant for Cecil B. DeMille. He's also credited with several technical innovations. 
he's credited as being the person who figured out how to drape velvet around the camera in the silent era so it would reflect off the actor's eyes better and not make their eyes so washed out. Uh, his nickname of Low Key Howl was because of his use of dramatic light, lighting and deep shadows, which would become a hallmark of the noir style of film. He invented an early version of the crab dolly in order to get certain shots for his films, pioneered several handheld techniques, at one point even putting on roller skates so that he could better move around a boxing ring and capture the action for a film, uh, one of the earliest adopters of helicopter shots in film, and he was among the first, and according to some sources, the first person to use deep focus in film, wherein the elements of the foreground and background remain in sharp focus. He did that in the film Transatlantic in 1931. And if that's not enough, one of the cameramen on the film is John Alonzo. In fact, Alonzo has stated that being hired by James Wong Howe for this film is what allowed him to get into cinema and, and uh, his first steps towards becoming a cinematographer. And he worked on such films after this as Lady Sings the Blues, the Sally Field drama Norma Ray, the chase film Vanishing Point, the Dolly Parton starring Steel Magnolias, and the films Chinatown and Scarface. Uh, so yeah, maybe it may have been the marketing. Like I said, the the some of the taglines for the film just didn't really make sense. But honestly, just looking at the lineup that went into making this film, it just boggles my mind that it didn't do as well. It may have been a cultural thing. Uh, you know, it, it and it touches on the themes that a lot of the films in the '60s did about how maybe technology was coming to control us instead of you know us controlling it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, it is one of those that I'm glad. Like I said, looking back, I can see that it, you know why it's a classic, why people still want to watch it. It just like I said, I can't wrap my head around why it didn't do so well when it first came out. In fact, in 2015. Seconds was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry because of cultural or historical significance. So, let's get down to the most important question of all. I guess you all, you all know where we're heading with this, but uh, i got to ask it anyway. It's kind of my thing. Was it entertaining? Uh, yes. I mean, honestly, this film is coming up on 60 years old, and yet it still is... Yeah, still able to fill you with paranoia and dread, and you know, just give you that creepy feeling. Feeling, you know, it's it, it's timeless. I mean, it doesn't matter if the story takes place in the '60s. The themes are universal. The dialogue is just dead on. You know, the um, John Randolph is at times heartbreaking uh, in his portrayal of Arthur. Uh, the, the the one one line that just stands out in my head when the old man is interviewing him and asking him, you know, don't you want something better? Don't you want something, um, you know, know, what's holding you here? And and he's like, you know, how's your married life? And and his response is, we don't quarrel. Or uh, when it's Tony, he goes back and visits his wife and he asks his wife, you know, what what, uh, he was like before. and, And she talks about, Arthur had been dead a long, long time before they found him in that room. You know, and the, the, those moments, those human moments, 
uh, and the way the actors deliver the lines uh, hit so so hard you know to to me those moments are better even than the indifferent evil of the company you know i mean i, I get there's they're supposed to be like the all powerful uh you know antagonist i guess at some point but you know but but in the end what are they going to do that you know the worst they're going to do is what kill you physically uh and hudson you know hudson when he starts losing it uh in his new life playing tony uh, again there's just a few scenes and a couple of lines of dialogue it just you know you punch to me punch me in the gut so yeah seconds if you get a chance uh i think it's on canopy which is a service like um hoopla uh at the time of this recording march 2022 but uh, i also believe you can rent it through things like apple and amazon uh criterion channel uh i can't remember if criterion channel has it or not but you can probably find it if you want to buy it uh this might actually i tried i got rid of a lot of my physical media a while back but um there's some that i just don't want to get rid of or, or like this and i now want to go out and buy so i can watch it whenever i want to uh, so that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode in seconds. Again, go out and watch it. And I kind of want to do something just sort of goofy and a little silly for next week. Just because this movie was a little intense. And, you know, well, uh, you know just a little decompression. And this is one of those films I, I remembered. Uh, well, let me, let me rephrase that. I have seen it. But then I... Uh, I thought I had it, and apparently I'd gotten rid of it. But next week's film is Eagle versus Shark, and uh, I know from the title you probably got one thing in your, you know, one idea in your head. But I can assure you, it's not. It's a romantic comedy out of New Zealand, starring Lauren Taylor and Jemaine Clement from uh, you know what we do in Shadows and. Uh, Flight of the Concords and directed by, I, I know I'm mispronouncing this even though I've heard it a million times, directed by uh, Taika Watiti. Uh, like I said, I'm excited about it because I remember watching it and enjoying it and then forgetting about it. I think when I got rid of it when I got rid of a lot of my DVDs for space. But uh, then I saw it mentioned recently uh, somewhere on the internet. Somebody brought it up and was like, oh my God, I remember that film. And, and yeah, I've got to share it with you guys. So tune in next week, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about Eagle versus Shark. Yeah, so as always, if you liked what you heard, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell an enemy. Uh, if you want to, go wherever you download this from, and if they let you leave reviews or thumbs up or cash under a, an unmarked envelope behind the uh, that one bench in the park, whatever, go back and do that. Give me a five-star or a 20, whatever. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at CFeverDreams. You can follow me on TikTok. I'm actually doing more of those, I think, than I am Twitter right now. Even though I still hate filming myself at uh, C-Fever, Celluloid Fever Dreams. But until next week, uh, there's a lot of things you can choose to be in life. Kind is one of the better ones, especially to yourself. I hope you're going to have a good week until I can see you next time. But until next time, I have been Wyndham Jennings. This has been Celluloid Fever Dreams, and you know what? Have a good night.